to Work Interrupted, a podcast looking at work life after COVID and asking what next. I'm Christina Patterson, and I'm talking to people from a wide range of working backgrounds to find out how their own work is changing in the light of current challenges, what they think will happen to the work landscape, and how we can make work work better for each other and for us. Today is the first episode of season two in lockdown three. I'd like to say it's the last lockdown, but I think we've all learnt not to bet on anything much. Apart perhaps from my guest, who has made a hugely successful career out of betting on the financial markets. Guy Speer is a Zurich-based investor whose Aquamarine Fund has achieved market-beating returns. He studied at Oxford, where he was a tutorial partner of David Cameron, and then at Harvard Business School, and started his fund after a disastrous stint at a company that wrecked his reputation and made him unemployable. He's the author of a best-selling book, The Education of a Value Investor, and a regular commentator in the press and media. He talked to me about greed, shame, and what really matters in work and life. Lovely to have you on the podcast, Guy, and welcome to Work Interrupted. Thank you. It's great to meet you, Christina, and I've enjoyed reading your book reviews and articles in the various newspapers. You're the first uber capitalist I've had on the podcast, so this will be a very, I hope, a very interesting conversation. So I, I think, like many people from my sort of, you know, artsy, journalistic kind of, uh, you know, broad brush background, have really got what I know about the financial world from movies, Wall Street, Wolf of uh, Wall Street, uh, etc. And um, I didn't even know. I mean, I knew very little about the world of finance. So my my first question is, what is a value investor? Yeah, it's so interesting. So, um, you know, if you go back to the 60s or 70s, uh, people used to invest in all sorts of ways. And one of the ways they would sort of predict that a company was going to outperform was, for example, studying charts. And they would look for, for charts of stock prices and certain shaped charts were supposed to be uh, the companies that outperformed. So, they, Or they would look at other indicators that had nothing to do with what a value investor would call the fundamentals. And um, over time, a group of investors showed up, uh, the most famous of which is Warren Buffett, where we started looking at the actual numbers and what the company was actually doing. And at the time, that was revolutionary and it was extraordinary and it was dismissed until Warren Buffett became one of the richest people on the planet. And then people decided maybe it shouldn't be dismissed. And now it's accepted as the norm, but it wasn't at the time. So uh, a value investor is somebody who looks to the underlying value of the business rather than the stock price being some uh, thing that wiggles on a chart and you try and predict from previous prices, for example. But what I would also tell you is that I was utterly convinced of that, and it, it it inspired me, and Warren Buffett inspired me. But over time, I started to realize that there's a second, there's a double entendre on the word, which is that a value investor perhaps is somebody who invests in true value, real human values. But that's only something that I've come to recently. That's very interesting. I, I want to get on to some of that later, actually. But I I loved your book, um, The Education of Value Investor. Uh, it's funny, engaging, human, fascinating. Uh, it, the subtitle is My Transformative Quest for Wealth, Wisdom and Enlightenment. And that's pretty much 
what it is. I mean, you started rethinking work. This podcast is about rethinking work in the pandemic, but you started rethinking work a long time ago. So I'm, I'm going to focus on a lot of what's in the book. But first of all, what made you decide to write it? I wish, Christina, I could tell you that I came out of a noble place. I had uh, envy for friends of mine who'd written books or people that I knew who'd written books. And I felt like uh, I didn't want to get to age 40 without having had a family. And there was some part of me that said that I needed to have produced something that would live beyond me. So it was, it was I think like so many things, it was actually, uh, I didn't come from the best possible place. It was sort of egotistical, if you like. That was really what motivated me. <laughs> I yeah. love that answer, Guy. And that is such a constant theme of your book. You're sort of uh, kind of almost... Uh, discombobulating honesty about your emotions. I think very few writers say, uh, or people who've written books say, well, for the ego. And of course, that is nearly always quite a big part of it. So well done on the honesty of that. But but just that, you know, I I don't know if this comes into the book, uh, because it's at least five years since I wrote it, but I was extraordinarily motivated by the autobiography of Mahatma Gandhi, which had been sitting on my shelves for a few years, when I finally pulled it down. And I was shocked to discover within the first 50 pages that Mahatma Gandhi is talking about having sex with prostitutes and uh, eating meat as a devout Hindu. And this idea that a brutal engagement with the truth ultimately never hurts you is something, well, just so you know, Christina, so I, I came from this egotistical place that I wanted to have written a book. And then one thing led to another. The next thing I know, I, I've signed a book contract with Palgrave Macmillan. And now I'm so scared because I'm wondering what on earth am I going to write about that I have any authority over? And at least I had the insight that the only thing I really knew about was myself. So I should write about my own experience. And then that moment when I realized that I was going to be honest with the reader, inspired by Mahatma Gandhi, and let the cards fall where they lay. But I genuinely did not know after I wrote that first chapter talking about my desire to be a Gordon Gecko double, uh, whether anybody would ever want to invest with me after that. So I kind of <laughs> put my career on the line, if you like. Well, it was it was very brave. And I, I want to get on to Gordon Gecko in a minute. But, but first of all, you, you had a top-notch education and one that qualifies you as a fully-fledged member of the global elite, you know, English boarding school, law, and then PP at Oxford, Harvard Business School. Were you aware of the privilege this gave you at the time? You know, it's, it's a great question. Um, uh, I, I can tell you that at the time that I applied to Oxford, I was reading Thomas Hardy's Jude the Obscure. And oh, I, I, felt, I felt very much like Jude the Obscure outside those hallowed halls. And uh, nobody from my school, actually one person two years prior had been to Oxford, but very few had been to Oxford and Cambridge. And then what happened to me when I was at college was that, uh, in fact, I would argue that at least for the first couple of years, I was made to feel a total unsi- outsider because the the sort of, public school boys from about six or seven public schools were very much a group unto themselves and everybody else was kept on the outside, so to speak. And our college, for example, was half uh, state schools and half public schools. And there was kind of a class divide in the college, I felt. So I wasn't sure whether I was part of an elite or not. Uh, I knew Mm. I was at a fantastic university, 
but at the same time i was at a place where i was made to feel an outsider and the elite was somewhere else so invitations to dinner parties and to dining societies were not uh invitations that i received <laughs> very interesting i mean your your parents fled to israel from nazi germany having lost nearly all their fortune your grandparents sorry and yeah. you'd lived in israel iran and south africa before your parents moved to england so i assumed that that probably did give you somewhat of an outsider perspective but it's kind of fascinating that you can be at the heart of what everyone else would perceive to be the establishment and f- still feel like an outsider. I mean, you could argue that people like Boris Johnson, uh, Donald Trump, etc. <laughs> that's part of the trick that they have played, arguing that they too are some kind of outsiders, even though they are the establishment. It's, you, you can almost say it's kind of having your cake and eating it. You were, you were there at the time when Boris Johnson was at the Oxford Union, Dido Harding, who runs our test and trace system but can't be traced at the moment. <laughs> your friend Andrew Feldman became chairman of the Tory party and David Cameron was one of your tutorial partners. Did you have a sense at the time that these people would end up running the country? And did you have any aspirations like that of your own? You know, it's funny. uh, My father, who um, lives in London and Chiswick, was constantly telling me that I should consider becoming an MP or go into British politics. And I never even got a British passport. But I have to say that the, the awareness that there were clubs and societies going on around me uh, did not it was not happy for me and I did not like that feeling at all and and I think that what's so hard is that it, it goes to uh, a sense of am I worthy of it are they excluding me because because you know in the UK the, the these lines are always blurred so I never really understood if they if I was excluded because I just wasn't good enough or if I was being excluded just because I'd gone to the wrong school and so that creates a sense of unease about um, what my place in the world and ought to have been in the world. And I think now in retrospect, uh, I ought to have been part of those groups and it just, it played out that I wasn't. So, um, yeah, you'd, I would argue that I did feel like that group was going somewhere and I did feel like I was on the outside of it. You can kind of see from the outside observing what Oxford must have been like in the nineties as a, as a kind of latter-day brideshead revisited, how people could genuinely think, oh, yes, I think I might become cabinet secretary or home secretary or prime minister or whatever that might be. And um, so I wonder what your ambitions actually were at the time when you saw all these people plotting their political careers. (laughs) So I I think that if I, you know, and and Christina, as you know, I, I benefit from many years of uh, inward gazing psychotherapy. I think that, um, first of all, I was intellectually curious. I I just enjoyed, it was an extraordinary experience for me to be at a place that was full of ideas and that was just wonderful. But I think that deep down in me, and I think this is true of many, many immigrants, uh, financial security at the end of the day was gonna top everything. And so the Mm -hmm. idea that I would become a scientist or a writer or a university professor or teacher was just never going to be on the cards because the key was to get economic security. Mm. And um, I think that's probably true of many immigrants. I didn't realize at the time that I likely had far more economic security through a business that my father had started uh, already 
when I was a student at university, but it certainly didn't feel that way. And that was not sort of the prime driving force for me, I think. Mm, very interesting. And yet there's a difference between wanting economic security and wanting to use your phrase to be Gordon Gekko. <laughs> I mean, most of us watching Wall Street thought we were watching the film Wall Street, we were watching a monster. What made you see him and think, what a great guy? <laughs> exactly. I, I think that just to be clear, the movie came... Oh, Gordon Gecko. yes. No, I was thinking Wolf of Wall Street, which... No, no, Wolf, in, no Wolf of Wall Street. I don't think anyone later. would watch that and think, but, what a great guy. I, I promise you, Christina, uh, um, uh, Wolf of Wall Street, the, the similarities, I mean, um, that firm, Stratton Oakmont, when I was working at D.H. Blair, we, we knew of Stratton Oakmont and they were not that dissimilar. But I think that Gordon Gecko, I think it's also... That time that so so when we immigrated to the UK it was 19, 1977, It was the end of the Callaghan government winter of, dis, of discontent, mm. and then uh, Margaret Thatcher came along, and so I was one of these people who'd grown up in a Margaret Thatcher world. There was the privatisation. She the the Britain the economy did extraordinarily well through the eighties, and uh, I I'm forgetting his name, but that. Uh, minister who told somebody to get on their bike. That, so this whole idea, you know, Milton Friedman uh, just let free markets roll, and for want of a better word, to quote Gordon Gecko, greed is good. I mean, I, I had completely and utterly bought into that philosophy or that way of seeing things, and uh, I was slightly discomforted by this idea that I'd heard multiple times. Um, you know, if you're not a socialist. Uh, before you're 25, you, you know what I'm yes, trying to say. Yes, yes. But but it was it was simply that, and the idea that you could the capitalist idea that you could do good by being greedy. You know that's what you, that's what you were supposed to do, the invisible mm. hand. Um, mm. I don't think it was any more than that. But I, I guess also if we think of uh, the U.S. at the time, uh, that was glorified in all sorts of ways. Uh, there were there were these kind of um, uh, not robber barons, but but they were they were kind of big stars. These corporate buyout artists, and the idea that you could be one of those was was very attractive. <laughs> <laughs> you you describe in your book how um, when you got that first job, which will. Uh, talk more about uh, the the sales side was very much like uh, Wolf of Wall Street, a, a sea of testosterone, and that you say that uh, you were once told that prostitutes actually went up to reward the successful salesman of the day. Do you remember how you felt when you heard that? I mean, you know, uh, the the uh, the the awful deals that we do with ourselves to justify. Uh, misdeeds around us is is kind of scary and and it's a slippery slope. So how did I justify that to myself? And and by the way, the owner of the firm did this. So so that was all goings on on the fourteenth and the fifteenth floor, and uh, so that was going on in a different part of the firm and was actually a separate legal entity. Whereas the legal entity that I worked for was the that was the brokerage firm. And they were all hardcore salespeople, and we kind of ignored that. And we were on the second floor, which was an extremely beautiful wood-paneled cavernous room with desks with low lights on them, which made you feel like you were in a sort of a bank of the late 19th century. And so you just kind of put it out of your mind. Mm -hmm. I would tell you just to, not that I want to 
distract you with something completely different. But my experience of living in egalitarian societies like, say, Switzerland, and then uh, you go to somewhere like Brazil or Mexico, and suddenly you're in you know, a beautiful SUV and you're on the inside and all the riffraff and dirty streets are on the outside. And it's kind of shocking how quickly you get used to that and you mm. no longer see the people who are homeless around you as you drive around in your SUV. And I think that that was not dissimilar as to what happened at DH Blair. You just sort of, it's, it's, it's frighteningly fast how quickly you accept moral turpitude inside yourself. And I think that one of the scary and shocking things is that if anybody, any human thinks that they're immune to that, I don't think any of us is. Mm. So I think so. that's absolutely right. And I think it's so important when people talk about, particularly now, as we've seen what has happened at the Capitol with Trump and the shock around the world. But I think for many of us, it just felt like a completely logical step for someone who is self who is a white supremacist fascist he clearly always was that and his he hasn't changed his colors so this was just the logical conclusion of what he's been doing for for years but I think a lot of people think oh I would behave nobly in that situation and they're very tough on people who behave badly join the Stasi or whatever else it might be and literally nobody knows how they will behave under under pressure um i think it's it's it, it's a kind of very central part of our self-development as you say that we all acknowledge that i mean i i would just tell you there are two things which haunt me uh and i don't know how i would have behaved uh well actually i'll give you three things uh that that one is very real the two are hypothetical so i think that if i'd lived in russia under soviet union i would have liked to have had the career of, of uh, gorbachev Gorbachev turned out to be the the man who opened the Soviet Union to the to a new way of being, but the fact of the matter is is that he cooperated with an evil an evil place. Mm. Uh, more scary is you know if you if you imagine the concentration camps, uh, you had these characters who cooperated with the um, Nazi overlords. I can't remember what there there was a word for them. They were mm. they, they were Jewish, but they were on the side of the prison keepers, if you like. You know. You had a much better life. Uh, could could I have uh, avoided that? I don't know. But I will tell you something that is very real. At the time that I was un at university, there were demonstrations against um, apartheid in South Africa, and South Africa was in a, under a boycott. And at the time, I was of the view that uh, what needed to happen was that it had it should happen far more slowly and that you shouldn't give go to majority rule right away, and that the country should be built up economically before you did that. Maybe a little bit of land reform. And I remember debating that with students. I remember I was doing it at Balliol College. With the, Balliol was considered to be a very leftish college at the mm -hmm. time. And, and I look back at that, and I, I'm not happy with the way South Africa has unfolded in all sorts of ways, but but I think that that was that was morally the wrong position to have. It was just utterly wrong. And mm. how on earth could I be against uh, the emancipation of you know forty million uh, non-whites in South Africa? But that's where I was. So mm. I, I think that we are better off as humans acknowledging the sort of in a certain sense the evil inside ourselves. Absolutely right. Yeah. Or the, the capacity yeah. for the capacity for evil, the capacity to be wrong. I guess. And uh, 
Um, well, it's why it's why people. It, it always irritates me when someone says, "Oh, I think I feel think people are fundamentally good." I think, well, what on earth makes you think that? You know, they're not fundamentally anything. They're just people, and uh, people can be nudged in all kinds of ways to behave badly and to behave well. And one hopes that in a well-run society and ideally a more equal and meritocratic society, like perhaps Switzerland or Sweden, where my mother came from, uh, that whole sort of you know social democratic model, um, people often behave rather better are less driven by greed there is no formula to make people behave well but we do know some of the things that push people to behave badly and I completely agree that uh, level-headed honesty about that is much more helpful than optimism I I want to get back to optimism later because it's very central both to career worldview and the management of a pandemic but I to go back to your time at um, J.D. Blair it, it all went horribly wrong, didn't it? Um, <laughs> can you say a bit about how it went wrong? Uh, gladly for me. It was about three or four years or five years after I left that the firm was shut down uh, and fines were imposed by the National Association of Securities Dealers. And a number of the executives actually had to do prison time, some of whom were sons-in-law of the owner of the firm. Um but they, but that, so that happened a number of years after I was gone. But I have no doubt, having read through the documents, that what they were shut down for were violations that were happening while I was there, and I was just not smart enough, or name name what you will, to to figure that out. I think that we we value the virtue of persistence and um, seeing something through to the end. But there are some times when you want to do the exact opposite, actually. You just want to leave as quickly as possible. And one of the biggest sort of personal sins that I committed at D.H. Blair was this this egotistical and um, vain desire to make good on my title of vice president and to have done a deal. Whereas what I should have done is just left within three weeks. And so when I finally did a deal, I mean, it was as a uh, a phrase that Warren Buffett uses a lot: "You can't do a good deal with a bad person, and mm. you can't you can't get a good outcome in a bad place." And so I thought, well, if I can just get this, then I can de- declare victory and leave. But of course, getting to the deal uh, was just the beginning of a whole new can of worms. And I guess I was in a repeat of a Groundhog Day type situation in which, you know, don't get into a fight with a pig because you both get dirty, but the pig likes Mm. it, you know? (laughs) So uh, there was no positive way out of that. I would tell you that it took me a long time to understand that actually that's true of many people in the world where there's no good interaction that I can have with them. And the best thing I can do is just avoid them like the plague and don't even put myself in a situation where I'd be required to say hello to them because that's going to end up badly. <laughs> and there, there are some people I've learned with just some, um, I don't know how they can be happy, but, but they just live in a very different world to the world that I live in and the world that I aspire to live in. And I think that I came at them, them and those situations with the expectation that somehow I could transform them or change them. And mm. now I realize that's just not the case. Mm. And you talk in the book again with incredible honesty about the self-loathing that hit you 
at that time. And you quote the Hamlet, oh, that my tutu solid flesh would melt, which I think we've all felt at various times in our yeah. lives, sometimes, sometimes literally and sometimes metaphorically. Was it the worst time of your professional life or was the financial crisis when you thought for a while that you'd lost everything, which was worth? You know, that's so interesting. I mean, but different different crises in different ways. In in the financial crisis, I had not committed any moral acts mm. of moral turpitude. Mm. And I didn't really at D.H. Blair, but they were all around me and I was tainted. And I think that the um, what I had at D.H. Blair was just this disgust at the fact that, you know, on some level, I, in spite of trying to put all the bad acts out of my mind and claim to myself that they were going on in a different firm on a different floor, I knew that I was a part of it. And the recognition that I was becoming a part of something that was morally wrong was was awful to me. The financial crisis, if you have this kind of goal and destiny to build financial security for yourself and your family, and suddenly you see all of that going up in flames, it's a kind of a a landslide, not of moral proportions, but of, mm. I guess, just of security and wealth proportions. Funnily enough, uh, I think that, and I know you want to get onto it, but but I'm bringing it up now anyway. Mm. I think that that's sort of what the United Kingdom is going to go through having Brexited, is this mm. kind of, this sort of slide as the UK realizes that it's just accelerated a decline that didn't have to happen. And there's that yeah. realization. So uh, I don't think either were particularly happy. I think that if I had to choose, I would choose uh, the financial crisis before I chose D.H. Blair, because you can always, you know, my friend Monish Pabrai has a has a great phrase, when, when wealth is lost, nothing is lost. When reputation is lost, something is lost. When health is lost, everything is lost. Mm-hmm. And so it's really important to keep that hierarchy in mind. So Wealth is something that can always be rebuilt. Reputation, I mean, you know, I was playing with my reputation straight out of business school in a way that was just very stupid. <laughs> and I would just tell you that it was, that the book came as part of a realization uh, that there's so much of business biography which really doesn't cover what is necessary. And, you know, my goal was, so I was starting to, to achieve some degree of success. And it was really surprising to me how people wanted to misattribute that success. So, you know, it's a natural thing if you get written about for somebody to say, to talk about where you studied. And I kind of wanted to say, no, that's that's not the source of the success. And by the way, let me tell you all the ways in which I failed and all the ways in which I had to pick myself up. I felt like as I sat there saying to myself, this is gonna be perhaps the one, probably the one book that I ever publish and, uh, you know, is it going to be something that's going to be thrown away and never looked at five years later? What can I say that is really going to help the reader to really take them through the gory detail and let them know that that is, I think, a part of every successful person's life, but most of them just don't want to talk about it, you know? And uh, yeah. Fascinating. I mean, unfortunately, yeah. the United Kingdom seems to be in the process of destroying its health, wealth and reputation. <laughs> but anyway, it's not much we can do about that I'll make you feel better about it for a second is Mm. uh, I feel that that was the state of France for about 20 years and you know a country like the United Kingdom has or four countries as we know the United Kingdom is have incredible uh, 
cultural depth. And there's just no question that the UK will go through a difficult patch, but it will pull itself out of where it's getting itself into. It just may not be in our life. Well, I think it'll be in our lifetimes. It might take a decade or two, but it'll get there. It's not permanently lost, if you like. Mm. That's interesting. Very interesting to get your perspective. So after G.H. Blair, you found yourself to be pretty much unemployable and your only option was uh, pretty much to start out on your own. Your father decided to entrust you with his life savings, which allowed you to start the Aquamarine Fund, which has over the years done extremely well. Now, I know many of the investors are family and friends and your own money is also in the fund. What effect does this have on how you manage it? Yeah, you know, and I would tell you that if you look on the Amazon reviews, uh, there's one review that just says, well, this guy's got, you know, he got money from his dad, so um, he's got nothing to say. <laughs> and right. I kind of, I wrote a response to the review, which is basically, look, I could have left that fact out. I could have easily written the book without you knowing exactly where I got the funds from. I put it in specifically to show. And I, I, would, I would just say that just to be clear, I have friends who've actually started, who, for example, started a business, sold it, and then became investors. And, you know, I stand very firmly on the, on the shoulders of my father, and I'm grateful for that. And I'm not sure that I could have gotten to where I am without the extraordinary help of having a key first investor who's a family member. So I, it's just worth acknowledging. The beginning of justice is to acknowledge that you have gifts that you didn't ask for, but you were given, you know, and it's, that's true of all intelligent people. We have to acknowledge that that was a gift that was given to us. We didn't, we didn't do anything to deserve the intelligence that we have. So, uh, but now back to your question, which has just slipped my mind. So well, it's essentially, it's, I mean, that's a very, again, a, a very honest and, uh, I think a wise answer because we all have privileges in life and part of wisdom is knowing one's privileges and you were very honest about that in the book and and now I have the I now remember the question how 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 did that feel well (laughs) well how did it affect how does it affect how you manage a fund because essentially it's you're eating your own cooking to use your phrase aren't you you know, I, I think that something that my father doesn't realize that he he was doing was so, you know, there's this meta story, well, it's just a story that uh, my ancestors on my father's side were uh, for, in part wealthy industrialists who had benefited from the Napoleonic Revolution, the, the emancipation of Jews in Western Europe who'd made good and now owned businesses but were kicked out in the 1930s and had to restart. And so there's a kind of like family project of rebuilding what was lost. That was never mm. stated explicitly, but I realized that that's what was going on. And in a certain sense, I think that what my father had been looking to do, again, subconsciously was say, this family project is unfinished. Will you help me to do it? So the answer is I felt an extraordinary and enormous amount of responsibility, which made me uh, far more conservative, I think, than I would otherwise have been in the investments. And um, yeah, I, I think that in certain cases where I misjudged how to run the portfolio and probably overexposed myself to one thing or another, um, led to more than a few sleepless nights. And um, I think I've learned to run it now in such a way that I don't have sleepless nights anymore. But every now and then, I think it it, it gets kind of scary. At the same time, 
you know, the power of compounding, if you take any amount of wealth and you just are able to consistently grow it at a reasonable rate, after a while, you're going to have swings that in terms of pure monetary value are quite large. But given where you're coming from, and given how many times you've multiplied the original sum that you had, it's not the end of the world. And so I think it's gotten the kind of periods of being super scared have gotten a lot easier as the wealth has compounded. I would also tell you that a key to that is making sure that you underspend what you've earned, you know, and that has mm. become easier over time. So uh, it, it was an enormous responsibility. I certainly lost sleep over it. There's somebody, somebody wise or famous who said you in life, you either sleep well or you eat well, you know, and I, mm. I very clearly, at least in those early years, chose to eat well and not sleep well, if you like. Um, Interesting. And you, you talk a lot in the book about the need to regulate the swings of the irrational mind from wild optimism to extreme pessimism or anything in between, because you have to be icily cool when you're managing a fund, and particularly when you've got your family and friends' life savings in it. But my, my guess is that you are by nature an optimist. Is that right? I, I think so. I, I, I hope so. I know that optimists live happier lives and are more successful, even if there's no um, objective reason to be optimistic. I, I do know people who are far more optimistic than I am. And I think mm. that what I think I would, I would tell you is that the, the, this, the key to success or the best possible success you can have is to combine optimism with realism. Yeah. And I think that Sorry to keep going back to British politics. One of the issues that we have with the current prime minister is that he is he is optimistic, but it's not um, seasoned with enough realism. And it's that combination of optimism and realism that can really win. But optimism on its own, it, well, we see where it gets us. Exactly. It's been absolutely disastrous during a pandemic. Would you say, I mean, for, for me, I, I take the kind of Gramsci view that of um, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. Uh, and so I suppose I'd say I'm an energetic realist. And um, for me, when someone says they're an optimist, I have to fight the urge to slap them in the face. But it, it does depend on your definition of optimism, obviously. H has your own optimism been affected by the pandemic at all? You know, I, I would tell you, Christina, that that any I don't know how many financial market participants you've spoken to, none. Uh, and none, right? So, uh, for understandable reasons, what has happened in the financial markets is making a whole bunch of people in the financial markets euphoric because mm -hmm. central banks have looked at the economic mayhem and they've said we need to help. The economy as much as we can and they're doing that by doling out vast amounts of money to uh in any way shape or form to the extent that even the united states they're sending straight checks to uh taxpayers and that just means that having had a dip in the value of the portfolio that i run of more than 30 percent earlier in the middle of last year we're back over previous highs and we know that there are bubbles or that there are people are experiencing have experienced extraordinary financial returns so it's mm. you know and and while i'd like to say that i'm immune to all of that obviously that affects my mood as well 
And mm. I don't see any end to that, by the way. There's, the central banks, in a certain way, don't have a choice. So, you know, and obviously, I think that wh where was my mood? I mean, obviously, I, I, I had a sense the vaccine was closer than we expected it to be. My mood was lifted was the, as that came to be the case. And there's no question that my mood has descended, perhaps not as far as it's descended for you as we've seen that we're going to at least have a, a long and difficult winter. I've just become numb to it, I think, mm -hmm. I, I, is where I'm at. Uh, just, yeah. You mentioned, you mentioned just before we started recording, you mentioned, you said that it was like living with the weather, which I thought was very interesting. Could you say a bit more about that, please? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm trying to, I, I, I would just tell you, it was a glorious time when I think of it, but I, I went on a, a, a ski vacation with some friends in Norway, and we had an enormous storm and we were snowed in for five or six days. And once you accepted that the weather had determined the conditions of your life, at least for the next five or six days, you just got on with it. Mm. And um, I, that's, so, so this just, I guess, the famous uh, serenity prayer to accept yeah. the things that we can change and to worry about, to, to worry about the things we can change and work on those, but accept the things we can't. Mm. I think that it, it's very freeing Christina, you're you're you probably are not able not to do this, but I can just treat even the political reactions and the decisions that politicians and other people are making, or I treat all of those like the weather as well. So rather than worrying about the captain of the ship, and there's plenty, if I stop and think about it, to worry about the captain of the ship, I just see the captain of the ship as being part of the whole dynamic. And that is going to just work itself out the way it works itself out. Whereas somebody, and every now and then I do it, you're kind of getting inside the head of the captain of the ship and saying, my God, he doesn't see this. He doesn't see this. He's not taking this decision. He's not taking that decision. And that is very painful. But once you accept that the captain of the ship is in fact part of the weather, he's part of that dynamic system, then, uh, you know, I, I, there will surely be many other misjudgments many other cases where uh, he leaves it too late and then makes an awful decision and then reverses it. And that's just part of the dynamic that we've got going on. And um, That's very yeah. interesting. I mean, I, f I feel like going round to whoever is going to speak to him uh, just before he makes the latest decision and uh, begging them, begging them to listen to my views. So I feel like it's my full-time unpaid job to influence the captain of the ship to whom I have absolutely zero access. But your attitude sounds a lot more... Uh, okay. A lot more frustrating and sanity, if nothing yeah. else. But you actually, I, I hate to tell you this, but you, your moral obligation as, as somebody who writes and has a public audience is to do what you're doing. <laughs> I... I I would like to believe that given the drama that we just saw around the Capitol, that somebody uh, managed to get through to Donald Trump and say, Did, do you see now that your words count? Do you see what you've done? This is on your head. You're responsible for this. Now you better start cleaning it up. Mm. And I'd like to believe that um, he was galvanized into action 24 hours too late. I mean, imagine for a second that as those events were taking place,
Donald Trump had gone on live TV and said, I'm asking my supporters to stand down. This is not the way you go about doing things in a democracy, how much better that would have been. But so I do, do hold out hope that somebody might be able to get through to Boris. Yes. And what I'd say is that what I find so surprising, really, is that Boris has betrayed just about everybody who's been a friend or a spouse in his life. So why should he stop now? And there are so many far more rational decisions that he could make if he were to just ditch a whole bunch of ideological people around him. Okay. And why not? You know, you're good at betraying people, Boris, so just go ahead. Managing a pandemic clearly is a very complex thing to do and everybody is going to make mistakes. And one of the things you talk about in your book is managing complexity because the markets are a reflection of that complexity. They're a very real reflection of that complexity. You quote examples from med medicine like Atul Gawande's checklists and so on. What would you say are the key principles in your life that enable you to manage complexity? And are those principles or skills that, that we could all adopt? You know, I, I would tell you something that doesn't come out in the books. I've learned it subsequently, but it's so fascinating is that um, the, one of the most important ways to manage complexity is a brutal commitment to truth mm, so, exactly. uh, and reality. So if you, if you commit to something or if you engage in something or if I engage in something that I know not to be true, that I know to be a lie on some level, then, it, then in, in one way or another, I'm setting myself against reality. And sooner or later, reality is going to intrude against me. By contrast, if I commit myself brutally to the truth, then in a certain way, I'm aligning myself with reality. The reality is unknowable. The world is so complex. We don't know how it's going to unfold. We don't know what's just beyond the horizon. But if we align ourselves with the truth that we see in front of us, that is going to help us with whatever comes up over the horizon. And by the way, it's a, it's a reason why I, I th this sort of the populism and uh, running a country by using uh, polls or expectations of what people think about what you will do, that is not a very realistic way to make decisions. And so to get underneath those is perhaps the best way to protect ourselves. I think uh, just one other thing that, I mean, I did, I, I, at the time that I moved to Switzerland, I was very focused on the external environment. Now I realize that getting a sense of inner calm is actually about what you do with your inner environment. I could may, I may well have been able to do it in New York or uh, in London, but it's just to step aside and to sit quietly for a while in one way or another, however you do it and listen to what, what comes up from inside rather than from outside. But um, it's a, and I, I can just tell you though, that I, I don't feel I've got any handle on, um, how well any handle on how to manage myself or to manage the fund that i i run uh through not just the pandemic but just in the in the world as rapidly as it's changing and i i guess what i would come back to you there with is to say that uh that it, what i try to do is accept that there the vast majority of things are phenomena the vast majority of phenomena i will just not understand them i will not have the capacity the, the background, the brain power, the information, the models to understand them. And so I need to kind of focus on the two or three things that I can know and just act on those, if you like. 
And uh, that just means that, that there's, you go through life feeling like a bit of an idiot most of the time, but that's okay, I guess. I don't know if that's a... I love that response. I absolutely love it. No, you, you've made it clear, well, both in in your uh, in this conversation, actually, but also in the book, that you are absolutely following your passion, that you love what you do, that it is feels like and is a vocation for you. A lot of very successful people tell youngsters that they should follow their passion. But obviously, lots of people's passions, whether that's writing or poetry or art or music or dance pay very little or at the moment for many people nothing at all what would be your advice to youngsters in particular but anyone really relating to passion and work yeah you know um i I would tell you christina that i do love what i do and i am having a great time um but i would tell you so i was very influenced or i remember very clearly an interview with sting uh, the lead singer of um, The Police, being asked about his music. And the interviewer is asking him about his guitar and bass playing. And Sting answers back and he says, you know, um, I, uh, I I know how to play guitar. I know how to play bass. But what I really do well, what I know I really um, uh, exceed at is to sing. And I would tell you that in my case, There were plenty of things that I was good at. But for example, I am truly, at least when I was younger, I was truly superlative at learning languages. I knew that I could pick them up really, really fast. And so I thought, wouldn't it be nice to do something with languages? And I thought about becoming a translator, a simultaneous translator, until I look at the pay scales and I realized that that just wasn't going to cut it for me. And there were all sorts of reasons why. So I think... It's a it's a good thing to follow your passions, but I also think there's nothing wrong with saying this is a passion that won't pay, and therefore I need to figure out a life that I also am comfortable in and that I love to be a part of. And so, while I'm very happy, there is some you know I think that in a different version of my life, I could have had an enormous amount of fun learning more languages, if you like, and having fun with that. And I don't I personally don't have a problem with having made say that compromise and um so i i think that it's 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 more complicated in that the real word to younger people is not follow your passions regardless of your capacity to earn and to make a comfortable life for yourself it's be smart be super smart if you like and find a way to configure your life in such a way that you have the great combination of being able to find joy in your passions while at the same time making yourself economically successful and uh, and and making your life economically comfortable. And that, that, I realize, is an extra order of magnitude harder. But that's what we have to do. I would just tell you that uh, it, it's actually a... <laughs> Christina, you'll... So this guy, there's a guy called Scott Adams. He is a cartoonist he's the he's the originator of the dilbert cartoons and he's been he's been all over the map on uh politically but recently he's been quite a big supporter of donald trump uh, i don't know where he is now because he was originally a democrat but he gave me this idea that i thought was really clever of what is your talent stack so in the technology world they talk about your technology stack what group of technologies do you use to make your business hum and, he, and what, what Scott Adams says is that he's not the world's greatest artist. In fact, he's, he's 
half-decent drawer and that's it. He's not the funniest guy in the world, and he's not the greatest writer. But when he combines those skills together, he's found a groove with his Dilbert cartoon. So my my word to uh, people who are trying to find where they're going in life is, yes, listen to your passions, but also find a way to combine them with other aspects of your talent stack to be a useful person and to earn your way in the world. Because it's just, actually, I would tell you, Christina, it's a real problem in the UK because there's so many university courses that don't prepare anybody for an economic future. And then they're kind of there with their PhDs in, in some subject, which is not economically useful. The university is not doing a service to those people. And I, I would say you need to find a way to do both. And I realize that's extraordinarily hard. But um, who said life was easy? No, I'm, I, I love that answer. And I'm so glad you said that because I think, as you know, my commitment to realism <laughs> is, quite, is quite strong. And I think uh, a lack of realism in that area serves absolutely nobody. There are an awful lot of universities teaching youngsters journalism now, uh, and all the, all the journalists I know are losing their jobs. So uh, you, you kind of go figure, as the Americans say, it doesn't quite stack up. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you, what, what has shone through this conversation and in your book is how um, getting in touch with your values has played such a key part in your life and your development and the development of your career and indeed the success of your fund. Now, every company now talks about its values. They've got great long lists. Enron had a list of values. I mean, <laughs> everybody can claim they've got fantastic values, but the difference between stating your values and living them can be quite quite big. I know, for example, that you've said you only want to invest in companies now which are of some benefit to the world, that you, you can, of course, you can invest in companies like cigarettes that are legal, but that doesn't make you feel great. And you believe in a kind of karma, or even if you don't believe in karma, it's not a great thing to do. What would you say is, has enabled you to be most in touch with your true values and to enact those in your work you know uh it's funny how much of um even though i've spent more time in the united states even than i have in the uk but how much of who i am comes comes back to the uk so i remember the moment i was on long island with friends um visiting uh we, it was a weekend visit of to the family and uh, Princess Di had died that Saturday night, I suppose. It was a Sunday. And I was all distraught and in shock. And um, the the mother of this friend was very disparaging of me. She said, how can you have your heart hanging out for that woman? That woman was a... I, I don't remember what words she used, but she basically sort of painted a picture of Diana who was not just a victim of the media, but also... Uh, played into it and used the media and was kind of passive aggressive. She she used the media and then got all upset when the media didn't work out in her favor. And that for me was a kind of a very new and different perspective. And I asked her, where did you get that perspective from? How how did you come to that? Because there was some sense in what she was saying. And she gave me a book to read, which was basically a book that is a sort of an entry into the Jungian world. Mm. And um, and that was kind of like a whole part of me that I had never looked at. And within about two or three weeks, I found myself in a psychotherapist's office 
And I started a process of 10 years of navel gazing and looking inside myself, you know, a new perspective on this idea of the unexamined life is not worth living. And I think that the, the, the sort of the, I mean, I was diffident, but the courage, actually, the interesting thing is, Christina, the, the psychotherapist's name is Soren Ekstrom, and he's Swedish. Ooh, <laughs> so I spent 10 years in an office with him, pretty much visiting every, every uh, week or two. And I think that I mean, one of the things that happens is that, you know, you, you start off being diffident, afraid to look. And actually, once you shine a torchlight on the shadows, you realize that there's nothing that you can't deal with. But uh, I think that that gave me an orientation towards really saying, if I'm not examining the insides, then I'm not living a real life. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think it comes from there. And But exactly where it comes from before then, my internal life was unexplored territory until I started Jungian psychotherapy. And I think it, it, it had an extraordinary influence on me. Fascinating. And if you have one hope for something positive that can come out of this pandemic, not for you, <laughs> but kind of for, for us, for the world, a, a realistic hope, given that you are an uber capitalist grounded in the market and the realities of global economies, et cetera, et cetera, a realistic hope for us to set us on our way. You know, one thing, it, we had some exercise somewhere that we were asked to do, a group of us in the family where we were asked to, to talk about something positive that's come out of COVID. And, um, you know, the, the answer that I gave there was, was I just said, no, this is, it's it like, like, there's nothing positive about this. Sometimes, sometimes <laughs> God wreaks disaster on the planet and it's just awful. And the human condition is just lousy. I mean, what are you going to do? An asteroid hits the earth and you have a nuclear winter. Is that good? No. A nuclear bomb explodes. Is that good? No, it's not good. It's horrible. There's nothing good about it. Don't try and find a silver lining. This is the human condition. And and yeah, it's horrible. But but you know, again, so you know that that's really the way I feel about it. I feel like it's a horrible calamity. Yeah. Uh and there's 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 little that's good about it. And I would also tell you. Again, I, you know, I, I think I made a claim somewhere in this conversation that I'm an optimist. I think that there are many people who are saying that once we get past the pandemic, we're going to be back to easy sailing. No, we're not. It's going to be horrible. It's going to be the, the actions that the central banks have taken to inflate the financial markets have exacerbated the, uh, uh, the inequalities between... Rich and poor, in case you're interested, I looked at it yesterday. Jeff Bezos is doubly wealthy at the end, approximately double. His wealth has doubled from the beginning to the end of 2020. Uh, his net worth at the beginning of 2020 was under 100 billion, and now it's close to 200 billion. Those inequalities, we know that when equality, the inequalities get too great, bad things happen. The Romanovs get killed in mm. Russia and there's a revolution and communism comes about. You have mm. the French Revolution and awful things happen for 20, 30 years. What the world that we have to deal with after COVID is a kind of a scary place, if you ask me. There's there's a, a lot going on that we don't know how it's going to work out. And so I, I think that, uh, you know, I, I there's a lot of bad that can happen if we don't get on top of stuff. And And the most important thing, 
from my perspective, to get on top of is the inequalities that exist in the West between the people who've benefited from globalization and people who haven't. And we have to find a way to address those. And mm-hmm. I, I don't think that uh, Jeremy Corbyn or AOC in the United States have the answers, uh, but we better come up, start coming up with some better answers. And I think, as, you, as you've heard me say, I think that what upsets me about uh, what is what what's so we whatever one thinks of Trump and this we have to engage with his with his uh, yeah. supporters yeah. and. Um, we have to find a better way to channel what they have and what their anger is. And we have to way, find a way to meet their needs in the same way, actually, that uh, I've understood. I thought I could live my life just engaging with London, not thinking about the rest of the United Kingdom. The, 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 the Brexiters' grievances are and were real, and mm. those have to be engaged with. When they discover that Brexit is not the answer to their problems, some new generation of politicians is going to actually have to address the problems that they have. And there's, and what's so unfortunate is that, as best I can tell, uh, Brexit is only going to exacerbate their problems. You know, they voted for Brexit, but they're going to lose jobs. Uh, they're going to lose their jobs, you know? So the people, yeah. the people who benefit, and, it, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to... I, I will not suffer from Brexit one jot. The only way in which I suffer is that I lose a piece of my identity or my because I've always felt like I'm European and to be in the UK is to be European. So I, so, so, so be it. But economically, I will benefit from Brexit along with Jacob Rees-Mogg and a bunch of other people. Uh, but it's just, it's terrible that that's the case, really terrible. And I've now spent enough time last decade in Switzerland if I, well, sorry, I'm I'm rambling, but I'll I'll, I'll make this point concisely. Um, I spent with my family six months in Guadalajara and in Mexico, where the divide between rich and poor is very very great. And the rich people in Guadalajara or in Mexico in general don't realize that they're sitting driving in their SUVs in private uh, sports clubs in estates which have guards and walls around them, and they think that's the good life. And I explained to one of my relations over there that that is not the good life. It is not a good life when you don't know if somebody on the street is going to break into your house and steal what you have. Um, And the UK is going to become more and more like that, where there's the haves and the have-nots, and that is not a happy place to live. And I am more interested in the people who are push Brexit at the elites of British society should be more interested in having an egalitarian place which is safe for them than having an inegalitarian place where they have to build walls. Mm. Well, I obviously agree with every word of that. And I think that has to be the mission or a big part of it when this pandemic is over. Guy, it's been absolutely wonderful to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for a, a super stimulating conversation. Thank you, Christina, for having me. And I, I have to tell you that I have enjoyed your questions. Um, you you are not just a reader of books, you're a reader of people. And this conversation has gone places that I haven't gone in any of the other conversations that I've had over a podcast. So thank you for doing that. It's been fun. Great. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. 
If you liked it, I'd be really grateful if you could share, rate and review it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast. It really does help other people find it. Do follow me on Twitter where I'm at Queen Christina underscore and on Instagram where I'm at Queen Christina Writer. If you want to find out how I dealt with my own big work interruption, you could check out my book, The Art of Not Falling Apart, which is recommended self-isolation reading in The Guardian and The Eye. Here's to not falling apart and to doing work that works for all of us. And I hope you'll join me again next week.